Welcome to Regenerative Farmers of America podcast. Hello, guys. I am so excited to have you today. We have Rachel and Brent. If you guys want to go ahead, tell us about your amazing farm and some of the enterprises that you guys are into. Okay, so um, we are Resilient Growers Farm. Um, we chose that name just um, because we believe in being resilient for, for the main, main part, yeah. <laughs> um, so we have 10 acres that we purchased last July. Um, we are doing a basically two acre vegetable plot and the rest is eight acre um, livestock. And we go to the farmer's market, we have a CSA, uh, so a majority, most of our, our sales are vegetables. Um, we have a little bit on the side with, with the livestock, but livestock are mostly for fertilization. I love that. And I love that you guys are so new to this because you just have this way to say, all right, from start to finish, kind of what did you guys come into and do first? Like if someone was just getting started and you guys are starting over, kind of what are the big steps that you really started that garden plot? Okay, so I had this this huge plan on how to start it. Um, I was at the time farming on a one acre backyard uh, market garden. Um, and so I was kind of traveling from there to this farm. Um, and this was a blank slate. This didn't have water, electric. It didn't have anything. Um, so I pretty much started with um, a tarp. <laughs> um, but before I got to the tarp, I uh, ran my livestock on it for a little while. And this was in August, so it, it was pretty hot. There wasn't a lot of growing grass. Um, I had four pigs and uh, three sheep and then about 30 chickens. Um, and they were all together on my vegetable plot, the two acre sections So we had four different sections that I rotated them on. This was only for a period of about a month that I ran them on it. Um, we brought in a ridiculous amount of food bank food um, that we have a contract with uh, the local food bank. We get about three pickup loads of food scraps a week. So that's partially what we were feeding our livestock um, and then also grains too. Well, and then also um, alfalfa. So we were really focused on fertilizing that, that plot in a really quick manner <laughs> because I really wanted to get cover crop in um, the first week of September. And so, and I needed to tarp it four weeks in between that time. So it was a very fast step-by-step uh, step -step process. I feel like running the livestock on it was, was really cool. Um, since it was so dry, the pigs couldn't really burrow the way I wanted them to. Um, the chickens did great. Uh, at least the pigs fertilized, they did do that. Um, and that that was kind of my results from that and we were learning we used a premier one fence so we were learning how to use that too in a very small area so it was a lot easier to figure it out um the electric charger is it's very finicky I, for anyone who has one um it takes a little bit to learn especially when it's dry outside and the ground is like a rock <laughs> <laughs> it's when you learn to like water the grounding rod and all that good stuff right right <laughs> Yeah, so then um, yeah, after we ran the livestock on it, we moved them off um, into their eight acres. We tarped it for four weeks and then we tilled it. And that is the last time we tilled it. Um, then we, we built our rows. Uh, we did have a tracker, tractor to use. So we brought in about 50 yards of compost um, and that did the first 
2,100 feet of rows. And then we ended up bringing in, or we made another uh, 20 yards and finished off. So we finished off with, by this spring, we had 3,800 feet of rows. Yeah, so. That's no small feat to get all that started, especially when it's not turning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so after that, you get it tarped and you start implementing a cover crop. Kind of what was your, you know, if you're going from that dry land, kind of what were your next steps to making this like the abundance you grow now? Like, obviously, there's a lot more than happened in between that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, it, yeah, it started off super dry um, and then it was very dry when we tilled it. That That's not ideal. There was, you know, dust flying up, um, but I knew I had to get the cover crop in in September to get it, it I did oats and peas um, it turned out great and th this was after we laid the compost down so we did three inches of compost on all of the rows um, and got the cover crop established and we didn't actually plant vegetables in it until that early spring so we let the cover crop just kind of we let it sit for for that period of time and I think that helped tremendously um that that initial first six months if you just start with veggies right away it's almost like nothing is ready for that to happen <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. so tell me the other tips and tricks obviously you have a huge livestock integration like what are kind of the the things that you help to get it from just absolutely like bare soil not going to grow anything you know i'm sure the first couple vegetables were stunted and what kind of things did you do, closed cycle especially, to really start building up that soil quality? Uh, so we just tilled it that one time. Um, and then since, since then, we only broad fork. We will add compost when we feel like we need it. Um, but for the most part, it is adding like blood meal or alfalfa meal, something that can kind of boost the nitrogen. Um, but we actually have not added compost since last fall. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're planning on doing it again um, here soon, but um, 70 yards of compost is a lot <laughs> of labor, so <laughs> we just need time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Honestly, just deep composting, uh, like she said, those, those uh, a little bit of nitrogen, uh, when when we feel like we need it but um and and we try not to ask too much of the rows too we we don't uh we will do cover crops um you know every other every other cash crop uh around there yeah. and That's you guys grow so much right so do you want to kind of talk a little bit what companions you guys specialize in or like I, I just feel like you guys are producing so much for such a small amount of acreage. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, we we after this drought we we don't feel like that, but <laughs> oh, uh, but when when the season is right, yeah, we we feel like it's um, so kind of what our goal is is to grow is always have diversity and always have a balance, and also while you're trying to do that, um, have the right produce for marketing too. You have to answer to your customers 
first and foremost, like it's not, if you're going to grow it, it's not going to sell. There's no reason to, to grow it. So yeah, that's the first part of our plan is what, what are we, what can we grow that is, we know for sure is going to sell that we know we can grow um, because this is our first year growing on this plot. So we didn't know what to expect. Um, and that's, we did run into several issues with there was, it rained seven inches in one week and we had flooding in a small section of the plot we didn't think we would have flooding in and what do you know we planted carrots there so um it kind of how our game plan is if we grow a diversity of crops we know for sure that not all of them are going to survive <laughs> um so hopefully a high enough percentage of them will survive that we're going to make it <laughs> we we do kind of play a numbers game yes uh, but um there was and there was a period we started on leased land uh so the, and i i feel like that was really important starting out because we were we were uh it was our introduction to the market we started we started going to market we kind of figured out um the the demand and what people were looking for and we started to to gain a customer base and and then only after we'd kind of built up our brand a little bit we we bought land then so um it, it kind of an easy kind of a soft landing if if you will um but we do follow to grow so much in such a small space um i started i learned how to farm through learning on other farms but really it is i have you know curtis stone and everybody that um has written books on using every square foot possible i have really taken to heart <laughs> uh, so i do a lot of of what they have taught um daniel mays was huge in his no-till book that i use a lot from that just there's so many uh, jm48 i use some of his stuff so i've kind of incorporated so many really great books um into into my farm just but it's, you know, no farm is exactly the same. So you have to kind of take bits and pieces from everybody and, and make your own. <laughs> there's there's no substitute for knowledge either. Um, we like to say we have no book budget. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, she particularly has no book budget, but, you know. Thank goodness you have a spouse that feels that way, right? <laughs> yeah, it's the only thing we don't, we don't have a budget for. <laughs> well, if you spend 20, 30 bucks on a, on a book and you, you can really, if you get one thing from it that's really valuable that, that you put into practice, it's, it's completely worth it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, sometimes, sometimes you buy a book and you walk away with nothing and sometimes it's just full of, full of information. Um, mm -hmm. And some, some of the farm courses uh, are a little bit hard to justify in in that regard. You know, they're they're a little pricier. Um, Rose Creek, his his farm course, very affordable. Lots of great information in there, and yeah. I I couldn't recommend it highly enough. So, um, yeah, lots of books. We, we Instagram too. Instagram I've learned a, an insane amount of information yeah. on Instagram. Yeah, especially from your page too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because you guys are there. <laughs> Uh, any other books you want to add to that list? Like, I feel like you guys have just like maybe so many good titles. Any other ones that kind of come to mind before we move on to other stuff? What other ones? I I have an entire bookshelf. Um, the the Rodale Book of Composting is amazing. That's like book number one. Yeah, I, I feel like yeah. Um, 
Uh, I knew I, I meant to have a list of books because I. <laughs> oh, the, uh, the Biointegrated Farm. Yes. That's, that's a great one. Yes. Yeah. Um, by Sean Jadernick. That one's great. Um, and then, then you kind of get into the, the livestock grazing. That's a whole other group of books, but <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other kettle of fish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it. So tell me a little bit about closed cycle, because obviously like inputs are a big deal and all that stuff. Tell me what kind of steps you guys have really embraced the closed cycle loop with your livestock integration, especially to benefit the garden. Okay. That's, uh, that's been my biggest thing here is not and it's crazy how everything has worked out like the pandemic and then um the lack of fertilizer um exporting and importing and um it's crazy how it's all speeding up really quick but um the whole goal is to be resilient in that we can we can afford to live kind of separated from having to bring in a lot of resources um, and doing that with with biology for the most part um, so we try to use what would normally be considered waste, um, like the food bank scraps. This is basically good produce. My pigs and chickens get more, a, a higher diversity of vegetables and fruits than I do every week. <laughs> um, it's crazy. Like they, my truck is full of every kind of fruit and vegetable you can think of every week. Um, just last Thursday, I got 900 pounds of peaches. I mean, things that... <laughs> Wow. <laughs> it's amazing how much waste there is that we don't even think about. I mean, this is just one food bank and there are more food banks in the city that I'm not even reaching. And um, we, we get coffee grounds from three coffee shops. And, and so part of my biggest plan with the closed loop is to incorporate livestock into the vegetable um, very similar to well here's another book um gabe brown dirt to soil he he my first book that i read was kiss the ground by josh tickell that that really brought it all together for me and sent me on this this whole adventure um but he talked about gabe brown in that book and gabe brown is has been able to um fully integrate everything in on his farm um and he's seen amazing results over 30 years so um, it seems like it works really well <laughs> to me. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do on a smaller scale, on a 10 acre scale, where um, I have 50 100 foot beds, and then we'll build another 50 100 foot beds. And we will um, give 50 of those rows a break every year. And at the beginning of that year, we'll graze our sheep on it and, and our chickens and ducks. Um, and then we'll have cover crop on it. And, and so that's what will, that's what will happen on that, that whole section for the whole year. And then we'll switch it every year um, to re-fertilize and, and let the chickens go through the pests and, and just kind of like revive those rows and give them a break um, without having to bring in a ton of fertilizer. I will, you can never completely take out inputs, but that's just part of, um, you know, like the chicken feed that's my in, that in my mind that's my input um and we have a worm bin too uh that will we added 100 gallons of worm castings to our rows last year from our our worm castings um so the, just the idea is to to keep it keep keep it in a cycle um on the farm uh just a fully integrated everything relies on each other the trees around 
the vegetable plot are critical to the health of the vegetable plot. We have a pond now. The pond is critical to the, the biology around the vegetable plot and the, the forest section and the pasture. Um, we set aside part of our pasture uh, because it had so many native pollinators on it. I couldn't possibly graze it. It was like milkweed, yarrow, uh, lupine, so many different things throughout the year. Um, that we, we just decided we're just gonna let it sit and that's gonna be our pollinator habitat. So um, we look at each section of the farm as a critical part to the vegetable plot and the vegetable plot's what's making our money. So that we take that, <laughs> we take that the most seriously, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's definitely the, the ecology matters and thankfully we have a lot of space around us. There's a, a 20,000 acre ranch just behind us um, so there's a lot of, of land that is left alone. Uh, we think we think that is is really helping us. We try to leave as much land uh, on our property alone, um, except um, where you know we're we're, we're growing uh, where we absolutely have to be. Um, yeah, and we're just propping up the ecology, um, feeding the soil food web. Um, you were you're saying. We can never, a farm can never be truly closed loop because you always have an output, but it's trying to balance that that equation as much as possible. And, and you can find that in your community, you know, like like with, uh, you know, you can interrupt a, a waste stream, you know, find some organic waste that, that would be going to the landfill, which is a shame, but interrupt that, take it, repurpose it, uh, make make your own compost and, and you know, feed it into your farm and balance the equation. Mm -hmm. So that's what we try to do. It's a lot of work to make compost. It is yeah. so much work to make compost, <laughs> but. Um, and all that yeah. food, you just get so, such a small pile. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Breaks down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the stress, right? From knowing how much it took to grow that food, like personally and understanding like yeah. the math. And then you're like, okay, here's my little handful of gold at the end of it. It's okay, yeah. you know, however long. <laughs> So what's kind of your tips to people on composting? Like what are kind of some of the, the major screw ups or things like that you wish you had done differently and the, the gold at the end of it that makes it so good? Okay. Um, we really we really try to keep it as simple as possible. Um, you know, just, just balancing, um, balancing, trying to balance the carbon and nitrogen um, in, in the inputs which if you have a diversity of inputs, it's, it's not super straightforward, but you, you take your best crack at it and you do what you can. I mean, if you're bringing in all manure, you, you, you kind of know, you know, you can, you can be more scientific about, you know, how many wood chips you add or, or whatever. Um, but for us, we, we just do our best with, with trying to balance our, our ratios and we just do windrows, um, we just do windrows and uh, make, you know, verify, check that it, they, they heat up and they get to temperature. Um, you know, National Organic uh, practices, um, they say it has to be mixed and managed um, so that everything reaches reaches temperature. So um, we just we just do that. We, we flip it with a tractor bucket. Um, and it's it's pretty stupid simple. <laughs> the, hardest, the hardest part is just collecting. Um, we do run our is, layers on it. 
for yeah. a period of time. Um, we have been yeah. lately. <laughs> and then, then we let it cure for at least six months. So the pile that they're on now, we won't use till next fall, but that's just part of how we add the nitrogen is kind of our, our thoughts. Um, they so, really help break it down yeah. too. They will, they'll take a windrow and just flatten it. In um, just a couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> you have the beautiful mounds and piles and then chickens come and then it's all gone, yeah. right? <laughs> Where'd my compost go? Yeah. <laughs> what's, uh, what's your time frame on the chicken manure integration? So obviously like their poop is much hotter. Do you guys give it that full length of time? Do you find the integration and compost helps? What's your time frame on that? I think I, so far, I have not used my compost piles that uh, the chickens have been on yet. I, I really want to wait a year if I can uh, to really let it sit. I, I think the rules are six months at least, right? 180 days. For I... 90 and 120. Oh, for, there, okay. Yeah, there you so go. <laughs> 90 days for uh, crops that don't touch the ground, like tomatoes. And 120 days uh, for you know root crops or something that's on the ground. Um, so you guys are giving it like a couple like extra months and <laughs> really let it sit. Yeah, I, it just seems like well, and and, not, and the mulch, um, the wood chips that we get from the city, they take quite a while to break down. And if, if we we found um, especially brassicas, if you're too too woody, your compost is too woody, they can struggle a bit um we've, we've seen it a few times and and we think it's, that that's it's the we've been a little overly ambitious with with some of the compost that it's been a little woody and hasn't broken down yet and the the tribal knowledge right is that nitrogen is is being tied up by the carbon breaking down um yeah. and we've we've seen that firsthand unfortunately and the ratio uh, between mycorrhizal and bacteria can be a little bit higher, mycorrhizal higher mm -hmm. than bacteria with brassicas. I've, I've heard that, um, that can kind of mess them up a little bit, but we've had some seriously stunted broccolis <laughs> and we learned our lesson. Um, so it, I'd be fine with just letting it sit for, for longer just to make sure that breaks down. And that, that's uh, in, in farming, you don't want to, make any decisions you don't want any decision to be decisions to be made for you right um and that's that's something we've really struggled with um particularly when we we're both trying to trying you know we were all in we we're we we're both doing it full time um we did a lot of things maybe we shouldn't have done mm -hmm. because we felt like we had to you know because we had no other choice and we needed to do it and it was our livelihood it was our income and um that, that can that can force you into some some things that uh if you had options you you might not have made that mm -hmm. made that decision yeah um, now we can purchase compost before our compost is ready and yeah. it'll be fine <laughs> yeah we we use compost we probably shouldn't have yeah. uh because we we screwed up making it we didn't get our ratios really right and uh and we at the time we couldn't afford compost so we said this is it um which sometimes you you have to compromise or make concessions mm -hmm. uh we we tried to we knew that we might have some nitrogen issues we tried adding uh blood meal and planting mm -hmm. you know we tried to keep the brassicas away from it 
uh, as well. So we tried to we tried to compensate and it somewhat worked. It, it was in but, the onions and I, I had a lot of comments about these are cute baby onions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had a restaurant buy them and they were yellow granax onions. We had a restaurant buy them and they called them shallots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Kind of any other things that were, you know, learning mistakes, obviously like time. We're like, okay, compost is a time thing and over plan for time. Any other things that have been hopefully less painful to learn <laughs> for the Braskas? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just like, are you just asking for any other mistakes we've made? Uh, I feel like gardening is <laughs> like the sea of mistakes, right? Like every plant has its own pickle and it doesn't want to sit beside its friends. So it's kind of like high level, obviously, because we could be here all day on <laughs> different types. But just, you know, so compost setting time like that really needs to be extended. Any other things that have really kind of been things you headbutted against or really found that were like keys to moving forward and scaling? we we try to we try to scale we always say stay at a, at a scale that mm -hmm. you're comfortable with and you can manage which i mean we say that we still end up working you know until mm -hmm. until dark uh but the first the first years are, are kind of hard but um we all we also always say um you know if if there's a tool that you can really justify yeah buy the tool don't don't think about we it we never regret Get it. it the the quick cut greens harvester i don't know why we waited to buy it to buy that tool i used um, a shrub trimmer yeah <laughs> it's, it's it's so worth it um and these things can it can seem like a lot at first um but figure out a way to get it and there's there's a lot of these things have considerable payoff Mm -hmm. um get get your you know our we waited way too long to get really good propagation um so get yeah. getting a, a nice refined propagation system that you don't have to babysit very much and getting really healthy plant starts um that was that was another lesson that, mm -hmm. that we had to learn because we kind of we kind of bootstrap stuff together and uh and made do um initially but you cost yourself so much time doing that yeah. that it's it's hard to it's so hard to be successful if you're not, if you don't set yourself up for success and money i mean each plant you kill it's hard to add up at that point in time but it really does you end up costing yourself more money than than you would have spent in the beginning just by getting the right system and we it took us so long to really figure that out. And another one is the irrigation system. We took this irrigation system we had and Frankensteined it together here. Um, and I wish we would have just spent a whole lot of time on it, getting it exactly where it needs to be, because that 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 was the reason why so much money was lost. <laughs> so that that is something I wish that we would have done. Instead of expanding, get your current plot perfect. And I've said this for years and still I don't do it, <laughs> but get the current plot perfect and to where you don't need to babysit it. You don't need to hand water anything or um, just, or fencing. Uh, if you know there's deer around, um, get a fence around it before you expand <laughs> or, mm -hmm. or if your livestock get out, <laughs> get a fence around it. 
Things you guys like, play Russian roulette with that by having the pigs and sheep too. I feel like one bad fence day is going to be the end of a whole lot. <laughs> it's yeah. so stressful. It is so stressful. Yeah. Um, that's the thing with, you know, incorporating animals is it's, it's a world of, of stress and worry. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they, the premier one fence uh, has worked and it has not worked too so um they i feel like right now our, our animals just completely disrespect it oh yeah uh, once they get out the first time it's over like <laughs> that's it i actually just had that conversation with somebody else it's like never let them get out the first time because they're yeah. all downhill after that and you're like okay let me just figure it out perfectly the first time but <laughs> i'm wondering if i should just start out fresh with new livestock <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people have been there. <laughs> so I also tell me a little bit about, so you go to the farmer's market, you're surrounded by other growers who I'm sure there's a lot of very conventional. I would love to kind of hear what parts that are really important to you guys that other people kind of maybe say you're crazy for doing it this way. And like, kind of what are the juxtapositions in that space? <laughs> The first thing that comes to mind is is all the pest pressure we had this year. Um, we just had to let a lot of things die, like oh, at least 400 feet of squash uh, because the squash bugs were so bad uh, because of the heat and the drought. And uh, you know, people would ask us like, "Do you spray anything? Is there anything you can do?" And sometimes you just can't. <laughs> I, I feel I feel like yeah, you can do insect netting. Um, but there's that whole other side of insect netting that is is cumbersome and labor intensive. But um, that's the first thing that comes to mind is the fact that we don't spray and that and that we do like surrender to a certain point um, and just go ahead and take it as a loss. Um, and while the other conventional growers have just crazy amounts of squash on their table, um, it's just something. Yeah, we we, we deal with. We give, we grow successions. We we. Um, you know, and when it's when it's time, when it's time to give up on a crop, it's you, you have to. That's something we've learned uh, really well in the past year is coping with loss, um, and it's 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 a practice in uh, in stoicism. Really, you have to you have to learn to accept it and learn and move on. Um, but really like, like you were talking about the squash, um, you know, get a, get a couple harvests off it and then just surrender it to yeah. the squash bugs, you know, and, 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 you know, wipe out the row and haul it to the chickens and, and let them get after it. Um, whereas um, other people, you know, who are spraying pesticides and different things, they can, they can, uh, they can have squash off the same plants, um, you know, for, for longer, um, you know, you, you give up, you give up that, um, but we're, we're very open and honest about our practices. Um, we try to share a lot on, on social media. Uh, if anyone wants to talk growing with us at, at the table, we, we talk about it. So having that trusting relationship with our customer is worth more than losing some squash plants. Um, yeah. and, and that's, um, we feel like we've earned a lot of people's respect, uh, just by, 
like I said, being open, sharing everything and, uh, and, and being present. And we, yeah. we get the same customers every weekend that have never questioned us. Um, they don't request that we get organic certified. They, they just know that we're here to do the right thing that we're doing the environmental thing. <laughs> that's, that's what we, that's what we started it for. Um, and, and we want, we want our table to be filled with beautiful produce. We're fine with um, some holes in it. And, and I think our customers are too, but um, I think that it, what sets us apart from everybody else is, is that since we we're biointensive and it shows in the color of the produce and the flavor. So whatever we put on our table, I feel like people are still excited about. <laughs> it doesn't really matter what, what we bring as long as we're able to bring something, so. I love that you guys kind of segued so perfectly into the customer connection. Like, so what you're doing obviously has a huge loss rate, of course, because it's real. It's not chemically dependent and all this stuff. So tell me about the customer journey, like, you know, from where you started, how you developed those relationships. And I'd love to kind of know, like, what words you're using, because you can't just come out and you're like, we're a biodynamic regenerative farm. And that's why we're better. Those words don't mean anything to people. Uh, kind of what what journey did you take, take your customers on to get to such an amazing place? Huh? Yeah. Go. Okay. Go for it. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so when we first started the farm, we had no brand and I had grown all this produce and nowhere to sell it. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, it was terrifying. I had nowhere, uh, nobody was coming to buy it. I wasn't getting any CSA customers. Uh, and so it really is critical to get your brand. <laughs> and so how we built that, um, I think it, it started when we went to the market and it, it really was just how we presented the produce on the table. Uh, for the most part, it, we brought um, really vibrant, um, healthy looking produce, which says a lot without even having to say anything. Um, and then you, you have conversations with the customer um, if they do ask, um, how do you, what, it, what are your practices? Um, I'm completely straightforward. I say, you know, we try to be closed loop. We're um, making our own compost. We don't spray pesticides and herbicides and um, any kind of protection is going to be mechanical. Um, and I think that pretty much gives them what they need to know um, after seeing the produce too, um, to, and once they take it home and they taste it, then that's another thing too. Um, and how long it lasts in their fridge. I feel like a lot of our customers come get our mixed greens because they say it lasts really long in the fridge. <laughs> um, and so they know that, that it's healthier. So uh, I think that's been the main reason why we get, we, we get repeat customers. If we see, it's really cool. We get to see the same people every weekend and I've seen kids grow up uh, over the past couple of years. <laughs> like the carriage to you know walking with a little flower in her hand <laughs> it's been really cool so we develop each each time we see them we develop more and more connections and, and conversations so it's the, they really want to know who we are and and what we stand for and, and um what it's like really they want they are so uh it, what's so cool is that even during like hail and rain these customers show up and, and that's been part of what is important to us too, is we show up at market. Um, if we don't have any produce, that's one thing <laughs> that we can't come to market, but 
we take it very seriously to go to market every single weekend that it's open. And, and our customers know that too, that they can depend on us for consistency is, is a big, it's a big deal. Yeah, we, uh, we, we're engaging. Um, we, we, you know, we'll engage our customers. We talk about our, our practices, you know, a lot of people want to know what seeds we're, we're, we're growing and we'll, we'll tell them that too. Um, we definitely, we, we have a no sitting rule at the, so we don't take chairs to market. It's, we're, we're there. Um, we're there to engage people and to sell vegetables. So, um, we're, we're very serious about that. Um, and yeah, I, uh, we, and we are very lucky. Um, we didn't, we didn't do a lot of market research before we, we got into this. We just sort of dove in and uh, we definitely could have, but we lucked into, we have a really great market um, with, with a great community behind it that is really passionate about buying local. And we came in at just the right time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like um, that's something we could have done a lot better, but we definitely lucked into, but knowing going to the farmer's market, knowing uh, who else is there, um, because you definitely want to be unique at, at the farmer's market. Um, I, I think Curtis Stone said, mentioned something about that one time is, is um, if you go into a market, it, into a saturated market, um, you're probably gonna struggle as, as, a, as a first year grower and you might not make it to a second year grower. So, um, kind of having having that edge of, of being unique in your market um, which we there was a, a there was a fantastic local farm um, that just so happened to go to a CSA only um, right so they they quit the farmers market right as we came in so we we got it we were able to fill that void we were incredibly lucky um, we had a lot of their customers that were looking for for someone else to re replace um, replace that in their weekly uh, grocery allotment. So, um, and we we filled right in. Yeah. We're, we're, <laughs> we did our best. We're still doing our best. Um, we we try to we try to have a full table every every Saturday. Um, we harvest on Fridays exclusively, so it's it's always next day fresh, mm -hmm. and I think that really shows as yeah. well. And we take recommendations too. Like if a customer is looking for something, uh, we usually take note of it and we'll grow it the next season or, or try to. Um, there's been a couple that like French sorrel. Um, I had a customer that said, you need to grow this. It's really cool. Um, and I, I did it this spring and it turned out to be very lucrative and everyone got excited about it and nobody else had it. So it grows. <laughs> It grows like a weed. Yeah. You can't, we literally, we tried to kill it. We couldn't, we, <laughs> we couldn't terminate it like twice and it just kept yeah. growing back. But every time it would grow back and it was vibrant and healthy and it tasted great. And toddlers and, like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We had a, we had a toddler, toddler just sitting there eating it out of the bag at our, at our table. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great. <laughs> if only cash crops grew in like that all the time, right? Like, I know. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of a 
my last question to you is that's a gray area, right? Like you can grow all these like amazing, exotic, very cool plants. And is it just customer recommendations that you pick those up? How do you kind of make those choices between traditional, conventional, and some of the kind of neater things out there that are a little bit of a wild card? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we definitely every year we kind of tailor uh, the the list a little bit, um, and it's going to be unique to to every everyone. Um, and if if you're a new grower and you're starting out, you really just want to go and pay attention to you know what's at the market and kind of take take note of of what's out there. Um, but this year we really initially our first year we grew everything right all the all the exotic stuff and everything that looked interesting and we just threw the kitchen sink at it um and then this year uh we really tried to narrow it down um look at the value of each crop look at the value per square foot um and we also made a rule that for every um what was it four for every four <laughs> consistent yeah. Um, crops that we knew would be that we were confident of, of their success and we knew they were going to be valuable we would try something right so setting those rules for yourself or else you can get really carried away with "Ooh, this squash looks fun and i'm gonna i'm gonna try this and that and, and uh pretty much like your entire seed budget is spent on you know things things that may or may not uh contribute to your success so um but you want you want to try those things because there might be there might be gold there. You you might strike gold with something and and it really connects with 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 your uh, customer base and everyone loves it and it grows really well in your soil and you you just never know. So you want to try new things, but you want you need that you need a consistent foundation to build off of. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. that's kind of our current rule is uh, we have. We have our our consistency, and then we have our wild cards that, mm -hmm. that we throw in there. Balance, yeah, yeah, it's all about balance. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, uh, there are so many people that are coming into this space. What would be your words of wisdom to people who have either done this as a hobby and are thinking of growing, or people who are new to this? Like, what are your words of wisdom? Hmm. It's really hard. And you're gonna want to give up many times, but don't because there are people doing it successfully out there, and so can you. <laughs> I have to tell myself that a lot. <laughs> I I would say um, it's really hard to do alone. Um, it's it's really hard for one person. You you have to be a special kind of person to be able to do this alone. Um, you need a, a skill set that is so varied that includes so many things um and you need you know multiple personality types you'd have to be a, a freaking schizophrenic to, to 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 possess um everything it takes to to really do this so um i would say you probably you you have the highest chance of of success if you are partnering with someone if, if mm -hmm. it's a if it's a joint venture and really try to find someone that complements you in in a lot of ways in mm -hmm. in your in your knowledge base and uh you know your personality type and you know what 
what you like to work on, uh, how you like to work, all all those things. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. Yeah. There's even there's a partner uh, partnership podcast right um, on on partnerships. Um, gosh, it, it's connected to the no-till, I think. But but there's many farms out there who are who have partnered um, and made it work. So um, you don't necessarily have to start start your farm from the ground up. You can, like Brent said, join it join in with someone, and it makes it a lot easier. It's definitely honestly, I have a lot of respect for anyone who tries who enters into this, um, you know, alone. It is, it's we all know it's an immense amount of work. It's uh, and it's it's um, it can be kind of lonely by by if you if you're doing it alone um and like i said the the skill set required you know you have to you have to have some mechanical knowledge you have to be able to plan um you have to be able to do really physical things um you have to you have to be good uh with with excel you know being being somewhat computer savvy um helps helps a lot um, you have to have marketing. <laughs> you have to be able to market yourself and uh, and do the whole business side of things. So it's a it's it's a lot for one person. Um, so yeah, and if if you are that person that's going to try to to do it alone, uh, just read a lot. <laughs> just just consume as as much as you can. Um, yeah. Read, read all of Curtis Stone's books probably is, is, uh, is a good place to, to start if you, if you want to be start small. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Well, we will just drop a list of books in the comments section <laughs> so everybody can just start down the very long, very good reading list you guys have for them. Everybody yeah. go follow yeah. them on social media, on their website. They are always doing cool new stuff. And I appreciate you guys sharing so much. It's such a wealth of information. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you.